Every time uh, you start something new, you ask yourself a number of questions, but there are two questions in particular that I'm thinking of, that when you start uh, something new, you ask those. And that, the first is, um, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? I've, I've started this new thing, and am I doing enough? Maybe you are learning a new instrument. Am I spending enough time working on practicing my instrument? Or you're working on learning a new language, perhaps. And you think to yourself, okay, am I doing enough to learn this new language? Or maybe you join a club, and you're joining, and you're participating in this club, and you're thinking to yourself, am I doing enough as I participate in this club? Or you're starting a new job, and you're working in the new job, and you're going, okay, is, 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 am, I, am I performing well enough? Am I, am I doing enough in this new job? Maybe it's a diet or exercise routine. Maybe it's the house, uh, you got a new house, and you're taking care of this new house, and you're just asking yourself, am I doing enough as I participate or I, as I do this thing that I've committed myself to? Am I doing enough? And then the other question that you ask yourself is, uh, is it worth it, right? Because maybe you find yourself going, okay, I'm doing as much as I feel like I ought to be doing. I'm putting myself, pouring myself into this, and is it worth it? Is it worth it? Am I getting the results that I want, right? Perhaps uh, you're trying to uh, maintain the house and you find yourself putting lots and lots of energy into maintaining the house and you just find that there's never an end to that, right? And so you just wonder, is, it, is all of the effort worth it? Or as you're learning a new skill or you're joining a team and you find yourself with the bumps and bruises that come along with learning or practicing or participating and you wonder, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Is it going to be worth it in the end to invest this kind of energy? And the reason that I bring those up is because uh, we have been looking through the book of Matthew and talking about uh, what it means to follow Jesus, right? And you might remember that a couple of weeks ago, Jesus uh, was having crowds around him. He's teaching, he's healing those crowds, and children, little children, are brought to him, and uh, the disciples are trying to push them away, and Jesus says, no, no, let the little children come to me. Allow the little children to come to me, because the kingdom belongs to such like these. And so he encourages the little children to come and is telling, using them as an object lesson to say, you got to be like a little child who will come to me right? And you come as a child. Well, then a, a rich young man comes to Jesus and uh, is going, okay, Jesus, I want to come, right? I want to enter into eternal life, into the kingdom of God, and these are all of the things that I have done. I have attained to these things. Is this enough? Have I done enough? And Jesus goes, no, no, you don't understand. You're not trying to get above the line. You need to give everything up and come in like a child below the line. And the young man, this rich young man, went away sad because he wasn't willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. He would do more, but not give up everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus, in seeing that, says, wow, how difficult it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven because they uh, don't want to give everything up. And so that brings up a question for Peter. In verse 27 of Matthew chapter 19, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. 
what then will we have? Peter sees this young man come up to Jesus, this young man who seems to have everything. He's, he's done it all, right? He's done it all. He has his whole life put together, and he's turned away sorrowful and sad. And so Peter goes, what about us, Jesus? What about us? Have we done enough? Have we done enough? We have given up everything to follow you. Have we, have we done enough? And, and if we've done enough, Jesus, is it going to be worth it? Because look at that young man who just went away. I mean, he's sad that you're not going to let him follow you, but look at all that he has. And we've left everything to follow you. And it's been amazing, but in the end, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be worth it to follow Jesus if we have to give up everything? In fact, if you remember back to Matthew chapter 4, this is how it went, right? This is the difference between these disciples and that young man. While walking beside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. How different that is, right? Here comes this young man with all of his stuff, right? Maybe not on him uh, right at that moment, but all, he comes with all of his stuff and he comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, drop all the stuff and follow me. That wasn't weird, right? When we read it last week, it sounded kind of weird. Wow, Jesus, you're asking him to drop everything and follow you? But that's actually how Jesus started his ministry, was calling people in that way. He was inviting this young man to be a disciple in the same way that he had invited his disciples to begin with. In fact, for them, he was walking along and there they were in their stuff, right? Right in the midst of their work and their possessions and their income and their family. And Jesus goes, hey, come follow me. And they went, okay. And they dropped everything and left and followed him. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. And now, Peter, watching this young man walk away sad, is just going, okay, Jesus, I just want you to remember that we dropped everything to follow you. Jesus is going, yeah, Peter, I, I remember that. I remember. Jesus, don't mess with me now. Is it going to be worth it? What are we going to get? I mean, we've given up everything to follow you. Is it going to be worth it? And Jesus said to them, verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, will have, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Okay, let's, let's unpack this a little bit, right? Because what Jesus is, is promising Peter is, Peter, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to be awesome. When I... Now, this translation in the the ESV, which I I normally really like, says in the new world, which isn't really helpful. It's um, in the again creation, in the recreation, right? That's, That's what he's talking about here. When there is this regeneration, when the world is recreated at that time, when things are restored to the way that they ought to be, Then I will be sitting on my glorious throne, and you who have followed me will also be sitting with me on thrones. That sounds pretty great. That sounds pretty great. And you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about what does this mean, right? They're going to sit on these 12 thrones. They're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I just want to think about what this judgment looks like. Because I read earlier from Psalm 122, and I was talking about Psalm 122 in uh, the context of praying for the peace of Israel, right? And the reason it says in Psalm 122 that we are to pray for the peace of Israel and Jerusalem in particular is because that is the location of the temple. That is where God's people would go to praise Him and worship Him. And it was the place of the representation of God's judgment. So that in verse 5 of Psalm 122 it said, There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. That's where the judgment seats were. That's where where judgments would be made, where if you were to come and look for um, some kind of resolution for something that you needed judgment about, that's where you would find that. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 8 and 9, it says, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Right? This is just general wisdom that when the, the king is sitting there on the throne in the judgment seat and somebody comes up, it's going to recognize what is sinful and what is not. Right? There's going to be discernment there that, that he's, as he's judging is going to judge wisely and that nobody's really who is a sinful going to be able to stand before him and go, yep, there's no sin here. Now, we recognize that earthly kings, earthly judges are not perfect in this. But there is a great judge in heaven and earth who is. Whose eyes distinguish between that which is good and that which is evil. And recognize it. And so in Psalm, uh, sorry, in Daniel chapter 7, we get this picture. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Then verse 13, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. But this, uh, Verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And then verse 21. And as I looked, there was a horn that made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now verse 26, we're almost to the end. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, and to be consumed and to destroy to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, let's unpack all of that, okay? Because there's a lot there. But this is what Daniel is saying. I'm looking forward to a time. I'm looking forward to a time when the Ancient of Days, the great God of heaven and earth, is sitting on His glorious throne, preparing to execute judgment. And the Son of Man will come, and everything will be handed over to Him. So when Jesus is talking with His disciples, and He's saying, at the end, at the regeneration, the recreation of all things, when I sit down on my glorious throne, He's making allusions back to Daniel chapter 7. He, the Son of Man, is going to come and He's going to sit down on His glorious throne, and from that throne, He is going to reign over all peoples in all places at all times. And he is going to execute judgment. Now, if he's going to do that, then what need is there for there to be other thrones? Right? Why would you have to have any other thrones? Why would you have to have any other judges there? Right? Because Jesus is going to be sitting on the throne, and he is going to be able to judge the heavens and the earth and everyone who comes before him. And everyone will have to come before him. And so what are these other thrones there for? These are the witnesses. These are the witnesses because when we're talking about judging, right? If you're going to go and you're going, you have some kind of issue that's come up and you need to go and see a judge, what are you hoping for in that judge? Right? I, I have a conflict with my neighbor, say. Right? We have a boundary dispute. Uh, he's wanting to move the fence line, and I'm going, no, 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 I really like the fence line where it is. And so we have this boundary dis dispute between me and my neighbor, and we're going to go and we're going to talk to a judge about it. Why are we going to go and talk to a judge about it? We're going to go talk to the judge because we believe, the two of us, that the judge is an authority who will say, this is what is good and right. Right? They will be an objective uh, observer of the situation, they will have the information that they need, and they will be able to discern what is good and right, and they will say, this is what is good and right. 
That's what we're looking for in a judge, right? If a judge is not going to be that kind of person, if he's not going to be impartial, if he's not going to be objective, if he's not going to say what is good and right, then we don't want that judge. Yeah? But Jesus is that kind of a judge. And so when we have judges who are judging in the way that Jesus would have them judge, what they are doing is they are agreeing with Jesus about what is good and right. So when we have these 12 disciples being told, you're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, we have them as representatives to stand up and agree and say, yes, what he is saying is good and right. I am verifying and agreeing with that. In fact, we have seen this kind of thing before in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, it says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, are these people who have been, uh, are the people of Nineveh or the, the queen of the south, are these people who have been uh, invested with some kind of authority to say, I now have the wisdom to discern and to judge and to condemn? No. No, but they recognized when God said, this is what is good and true and right, they recognized it and went, ah, I understand, right? I understand. And so the people of Nineveh, when they heard God say, this is what is good and true and right, the people of Nineveh repented and said, what we have been doing is bad and wrong. And so we want to follow what is good and right. And the queen of the south left everything when she heard about the wisdom of Solomon and said, I want to go receive the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says, and what is better than Jonah is here in me, and what is better than Solomon is here in me. And so if they did that, for that which was less than me, then they will rise up in judgment over this generation, to be able to affirm as witnesses and say, yes, we understood and recognized that which was good and true, which Jesus or God has declared, and we are in agreement with Him. We're in agreement with Him. Because otherwise, what might happen? What might happen is they go... The, the, this generation, right, as, as it says in Matthew chapter 12, what will happen is that this generation might say, no, no, we don't think that's right. And God will say, no, it is right. And then they might say, well, we didn't know. We didn't understand. We couldn't see. That wasn't a thing that could be understood by us. You were talking over our heads. You had veiled it from us. We couldn't see or understand what you were talking about. And then the people from Nineveh will go, um, we didn't have as much information as you had and we understood. And the queen of the south will rise up and go, um, 
I didn't have nearly as much information as you had, and I understood. And when those 12 tribes of Israel, and when that young man in particular turn away and go, I didn't understand that if I gave up everything and followed you, then I would inherit eternal life, the disciples will stand up and say, "Uh, we understood. We understood. They're not standing in a position of condemnation and judgment where they will determine because of their own wisdom or something what is good and true and right and therefore what the punishment will be. They are merely affirming that what God says is good and true and right is good and true and right. And thus far, the ministry of Jesus has been to the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he says, you, my 12 disciples, will rise up and will be on thrones, right? In this place of judgment. He is demonstrating that there is a completeness. There's a completeness. 12 is a a number of completion, perfection, fulfillment. Those who will follow Jesus, it will be the complete total of them. And that complete total of his followers, of his disciples, will rise up over the 12 tribes of Israel, the complete uh, number of Israel that did not follow him. And that representative group will speak against the other representative group and say, we understood and we followed. In fact, we gave up everything to follow Jesus. You might say, well, Travis, how do you know that this is a representative thing and not a literal, like, 12-12? And I, I know because we talked about it at my preaching meeting on, on Thursday, and we were talking about it, and somebody said, which of the disciples do you think made up the 12? Because, like, Judas, he probably wasn't one of those 12, Right? Was it Matthias that made up the 12? Was it Paul? Because there's sort of like, there's sort of like if you include Judas and Matthias and Paul, then you've kind of got like 14. But if you take out Judas, then you've got the 13. But then do you, would, like, and they went, I, I don't, I, like, how, who's, whose names would we assign in those 12 positions? And I went, I don't think we need to assign names to it. In the same way that we don't assign names to the 12 tribes of Israel. Because how do you count the 12 tribes of Israel? It's Levi included? Are Manasseh and Ephraim included? Does Joseph get his own tribe, right? Because there's sort of 13 tribes, but there's sort of only 12 tribes. It just sort of depends on how you number them. But when we talk about them as a whole, the nation of Israel, we talk about it as the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the complete group. And when we talk about the 12 disciples, that's the complete group. And so we have the representation of those who are following Jesus, who have given up everything and said, I am going to humble myself and drop everything to follow you because I believe that it will be worth it. That will be affirming what is good and true and right against those who should have had plenty of information 
They should have had all the information. They should have recognized the Messiah when He came. That when Jesus came and said, look at my works and what I have done. Listen to my teaching as I expound and explain the Word of God to you. And they walked away sad. Because they refused to believe. But the disciples are going to judge. And here's what they're going to see. This comes from 1 John chapter 4. I just, I just want you to listen. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this love, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so also are we in this world." When we believe that Jesus is the propitiation, the substitute for our sin, then we are set free of any condemnation. And that's the judgment. That's the judgment. Is that like that king in Proverbs, all of us go before the king and his discerning eye winnows us and says, I can see that there is sin within you. And all of us stand before him and none of us can say, I am without sin. And so Jesus stands in as the sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. And those who believe are brought into the kingdom. In fact, as we look further out, further into the book of Revelation and the expectation of what that fulfillment looks like, right? When that day comes that Jesus promised him, on that day when I sit on my throne, you'll sit on 12 thrones and you'll rise up. In Revelation 21 it says, And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God in its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the, 12, uh, at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. 
And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture that Jerusalem, the, the bride of Christ, is prepared and comes down in radiant beauty. And on all four sides has these gates for people to come in from all four corners of the earth, to come into Jerusalem, to come into God's people, to enter into, be grafted into this people of God's covenant promises. And on the foundations of those walls, each of which has a gate for the people to stream into, is the names of the apostles, those first twelve who followed Jesus who set the foundation of, yes, we believe that this is the Messiah, this is the King, this is the Redeemer and the Savior of the world. And so you have this this city of God's people built on that foundation with those as the gates and this coming together of God's people with with the disciples, God's followers. So that now when we get to verse 22 of of, uh, Revelation 21, it says, And I saw there was no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so they're all brought in. So have we done enough? Have we done enough? Can we do enough? We give up everything to follow Him, and what we must do at its core is we must believe that Jesus has done enough. We must believe that Jesus has done enough and we can enter into a relationship with God and be a part of His people because of what Jesus has done. And so we are willing then to give up everything to follow Him recognizing that what we will, re- what we will gain far, per- far surpasses everything that we have to give up. So he extends it in verse 29. Now we're back in Matthew chapter 19. He extends it from the 12 disciples and he says, and not just you, but verse 29, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Will it be worth it? And you think of those first disciples, right? That Jesus came along and he said, come follow me. Come follow me. And they dropped everything and followed him. Is it worth it for them? Is it worth it for them to drop everything and follow him? 
says, yeah. You're going to gain eternal life, and you're going to gain a hundredfold more. And I know that there are, are some here that you feel like you have had to give up a lot. I know that there are some here that feel like you haven't had to give up that much. You've been able to follow Jesus and have family intact. You've been able to follow Jesus and stay within your land. You've been able to follow Jesus and keep the same job that you had before. And you don't feel like you've had to give up very much, but there are those who have had to give up much to follow Jesus. To walk away from what they knew. To say, I cannot live in that place anymore if I'm going to follow him. I cannot do the things I did before if I'm going to follow him. To have to give up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands. And for those people, it is very difficult to say, it's going to be enough. Because the cost is real. Those of you who have bought a house probably have experienced the cost of buying a house and the things that you had to give up to get that and then go, is it worth it that I did that? But what we see for those who have been brought into the kingdom of heaven is that we have an eternal hope. There is an eternal glory, right? That's what Jesus was uh, prophesying for his disciples. This is what's going to happen. In the recreation, new creation, you are going to be incredibly blessed. But one of the other things that I have observed in the church for those who have had to leave behind the life that was before, is the way that the church becomes these things. So that you can gain a hundred times more. That doesn't mean that the cost didn't hurt. But I have seen for those who have lost children or fathers or siblings in following Christ to find children and fathers and siblings within the church. And those who have had to give up material things have found that they have support and lack nothing because they are in the community of the church. And those who have left a home or a place find a home and a place within God's people in the church. In fact, when you look at Acts chapter 2 and you see the way that the early church responded and the way that they cared for one another and were willing to give up everything, sell everything so that they could share with one another so that there was not any lack. And at its best, the community of God's people is doing exactly that. Because we recognize 
that it is not easy to give up everything and follow Jesus. But what he says is that you will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In fact, he says there are many who are first who will be last, and the last will be first. And so each person must weigh the cost and say, am I doing enough? And is it going to be worth it? But as for me, I believe that it is worth it. Because Jesus has promised that he will give all that we need, both now and then when we enter his glorious presence in the future. Let's pray. Father, we again pray for those who have had to give up much to be able to follow you. Lord, we pray that you would provide peace and hope and assurance. We pray that you would be their provision, that they would have no lack. And Father, for those who are here today who are struggling to give things up because or are struggling to follow you because they would have to give things up. Lord, I pray that in faith they would be willing to give it up to follow you. And then I pray that you would show yourself faithful to provide for their every need. Lord, may you be glorified today in this place, in this community. And may you be glorified forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.